Welcome back to Nota Bene. I'm joined by half of Nate Freeman, who's calling from a cafe in Midtown. Uh, yeah, I mean, busy day. You know, the holidays are upon us, and I'm trying to cram like 30 meetings into two days. 30 so meetings. 30 meetings. Kid, write, like kid writes it's a column, like, column a week, man. I closed $1.5 million in deals this week. Plus, I went to Dallas. Look at that. Plus, I went look to Dallas. That. You know, but it's How okay. How's Dallas doing? Uh, we, we were just in Dallas. It seems like yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. I didn't see anyone. I didn't see anything. I I arrived, right. went to the mansion, I woke up, went to a meeting, got on a plane. You know, Great. not Love it. not much to report. Did did, did bump into friend <laughs> of the pod, John Runyon, had a nice lunch at Jose, oh, which is an amazing kind of Tex-Mex restaurant uh, that Thanks, he's really part good. of the ownership group of, and and he reached out to his friend Jose Nueo from Guadalajara, who's a great ceramics uh, producer. I'm sure we've talked about him before on the a lot pod. Of Jose's. I would think a lot of, a lot lot of Jose. But Jose Nueo, well, the restaurant's named after Jose Nueo, and uh, the restaurant is filled with tiles that he created specifically for the restaurant. So, so had a nice so little little. little shrimp guadalajara style shrimp cocktail nice and light chatted uh john was on his way to go with some buddies to do a little do a little hunting down in, on a texas ranch so you know i feel like i got the, the full the full um the full experience that sounds like a great down home christmas just some hunting on the ranch in texas exactly right yeah it was it, i think they were just taking it one night i think it was his, his buddies from college oh, okay. go drink some beer shoot some birds that kind of thing totally totally sorry that was a southern drawl not a texas accent i apologize to everyone who had to listen to it <laughs> um so the bitch what, is back on? the bitch is back nate mm-hmm. miss little miss corona done, done done peeping her head up again walking into work this morning all the little covid tents that give you your, your covid tests uh here in the union yeah. square east village area lines around the block it's doping as fuck up in this piece uh yeah it really is super covid everyone i know seems to have covid right now i know it's such a bummer but, yeah you know ho ho like, ho merry fucking christmas what? I just got tested again. I mean, getting tested every day. I, te- like, I, I test myself every day because I'm a neurotic freak. Still convinced I have it despite having negative tests <laughs> and no symptoms. I know. But, you know, I think we just got to stay vigilant and stay strong. And, you know, and you know, before we know it, we'll all be in, in Los Angeles for freeze. And this will just be behind us. <laughs> stay vigilant. Stay strong. <laughs> you working at the White House? <laughs> you need yeah. a little PSA? Um, I, I will note that most of the people I know uh, uh, that have the vid right now, um, uh, they didn't get their booster because they were too lazy and disorganized. Right, exactly. You and I are yeah. fully boosted and feel oh, lots yeah. of antibodies. Um, I do, mm. you know, I get a, I, I did hook up a couple friends of the pod who shall remain nameless uh, due to, you know, HIPAA regulations uh, with my, you know, I get a guy, obviously, they'll get you your mononuclear uh, uh, infusion if you, if you, if you test positive to keep yourself from getting the disease badly. So I get a guy, uh, real friends, not just friends of the pod, but real friends. If, if, if you test positive, reach out to me. He comes to your house. He pumps you full of that shit. You're good to go. That's great. Yeah. I mean, like technology, right? We're in a much better place than we were. Yeah. And also, you know, it's like, but also, fuck technology. You got to have a guy. You got to have a guy guy. for everything in New York City. I got a guy. Um, (laughs) What else is going on in the world of art? There seems to be a lot going on. I went to go, I mean, you get some good gossip. I I was going to say, I actually went to go see some art uh, last week. Um, You know, (laughs) despite it being my job, it's something I never have time to do because of my job. Go fucking figure it out. Um, but I went to see this Wade Guyton show at Rena Spallings. Yeah, out of this fucking I world. I know. Well, the gossip is that you know Wade is is showing there because he's no longer showing with his longtime New York gallery. Oh, Friedrich Petzl lost another artist. Imagine that. 
that's just the word on the street. Obviously, nothing. He has gained some artists too. In all fairness, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was. You know, it's a great show, obviously, but uh, more to, pertinent to this pod. It was a little strange that Wade is showing at Rena Spallings because uh, he doesn't show with that gallery. He shows with no. Friedrich Petzl Gallery, uh, as well as Chantel Crusell. And who mm-hmm. am I leaving out? Well, Chantel represents Rena Spallings, the sort of collective and sort of fake artists well interrelated they're not the same as the gallery though right exactly um and i think that you know emily and john like you know would appreciate having some some way guidance to sell you know i think that that, that everyone wins yeah exactly i was pretty happy that they had some weird guidance to sell as well (laughs) also the, the point was made that it's close to his studio the gallery is and so there's some sort of connection because, you know, a lot of the work, he's made a lot of work about the area surrounding his studio and the buildings around the studio. Um, and so I found that to be really interesting I mean, as well. The studio is close, but it's not in the same zip code. I mean, someone said, you know, it's because uh, they have plywood floors, much, or excuse me, um, right. uh, wood floors, much like the wooden floors of his studio, which become mm-hmm. featured in, in recent bodies of work, including this one. I just thought it was an incredible show. I'm, I'm wondering how many they're selling. Um, but uh, and just interesting he's there. I do think he's probably leaving Petzl. Obviously, he did a show that I was able to see in Los Angeles at the Matthew Marks Gallery, uh, right. which was stunning. Similar body of work. So I wonder if this is perhaps a stutter step for Wade making his way uh, officially into the roster of Matthew Marks. It, it, it appears as such, though, no confirmation yet from any parties involved. Speaking of which, I did then go and see the incredible, stupendous, fucking mind-blowing show of uh, Robert Gober at Matthew Marks as well. Which Truly, is- I, for my money, that's the best show up in town right now. It's one of the best shows of the year, really. Just stunning shit. I mean, there's a whole bunch. of It's incredible. I mean, you, I can't even talk about it. You have to go see it. It is spiritual and cerebral at the same time in, I would say, almost equal measure. Um, and just the level of craft employed is fucking divine. Do you know Banks Violet used to work uh, in his studio? I did, actually. I always I think that's that. interesting. It explains Banks's work a little bit. Uh, another fucking modern master, uh, and perhaps, again, in the running for one of the best shows of the year, would be Bryce Martin's exhibition at the Gagosian Gallery. I finally saw that. It's like going that. to church. It's dude, really, really dude, incredible. So good. Um, and to, I actually went directly uh, uh, directly from the Wade Guyton show to the Bryce Martin show. And like they like the the I'm mm-hmm. sure it was just a, a recency bias, but it felt like there was some sort of conversation about painting at, at both sides uh, of a life kind of in a way there. Um, you know, about abstraction, about soul, about really what the possibilities for painting now are. Absolutely. All right, enough fucking auction catalog talk out of me. What what's going on on the streets, my boy? I mean, you know, I, there were some holiday parties that are still going on despite the Omicron. I mean, you know, people are are still going out and seeing. You know, this is not a shutdown. I mean, like I'm I'm in the middle of Manhattan right now. People are still hanging out. Like we're not concerned yet. But uh, yeah, there was a great little uh, cocktail party at uh, Gordon Vinnaclausen's house. Director at Michael Verner Gallery. Um, he he's got a little bit of taste. Ha- uh, yeah, he's got. I can a imagine lot of the house is probably pretty special. Well, yeah, it's it's on McDougal Alley, which is one of the few mews like in Manhattan. Um, and it was formerly. And he's owned a little by- catty, so it makes sense. He's in a muse. <laughs> uh, but the the home was formerly owned by uh, the activist investor Dan Loeb, uh, and before that, it was owned by Jeff Koons. 
Gordon's doing pretty well for himself, it sounds like. But it was very nice. Uh, caught up with artists like Cy Gavin. Joe Bradley walked in as I was leaving. Didn't get a chance to like and build, unfortunately. Um, very, very nice time. Uh, very nice. Yeah, I mean, the, the Omicron's around. Uh, life seems to be going along at pace because the issue is even if you get it, if you're vaccinated, you're not going to get that sick. You're going to be okay. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I do play one on TV. Um, what else? Is, what, what else has happened on the street? That sounds like a very polite party. Tell me the real deal. Where you been going? Where am I? I mean, you know, I <laughs> I can't say that I've been going really hard recently. I don't know. I mean, uh, it's been a nice little sort of toned down uh, ramp off from the air. There was the Connie Nass party on Tuesday, which was fun. Your, you know, your first as an employee holiday party. Your yeah. Um, you know, all the publications kind of keep to themselves. Uh, there wasn't as much intermingling as, as you might think between the magazines under the auspices of advanced publications. You and Anna didn't share a cheeky kiss under the mistletoe? We did not. No, no. She was there, though. Of, of course. She She's there. a leader, man. You get, that's part of leadership is showing yeah. up and being in the room. Um, I know you were recently in Palm Beach. Did you have occasion to... Um, to uh to visit the um Daniele Fine Art Gallery? <laughs> I did not. I mean like I know I walked by like those galleries and we know those galleries that the ones like that are on the avenue uh in Chelsea. It's like a scam gallery, you know, like like these are just, just scam yeah, artists. Uh, I didn't know that galleries you know. created to separate new money uh from that money. But it's like, you know, when we say scam, we don't mean it in like a legalistic sense. It's like it's like a you know like, oh, they were just like, you know, the scam artist guys. But I guess these guys were actually breaking the law. Well, I mean, we don't, we don't know that. I mean, when we say scam, I mean, they, just, they sell things that are overpriced to people that don't know exactly, any fucking better. Exactly. And honestly, probably deserve to be separated from their money. Um, it's basically right. the rich person's version of buying art at an auction on a carnival cruise. But yeah, uh, you know, starting early yesterday, there were reports that uh, a bunch of, you know, guys in, in parkas with the letters FBI were hanging out. Right by all the major galleries in Palm Beach, uh, you know, uh, Christie's is literally right next door. So is Paula Cooper. Um, so is Ben Brown. All the guys are right there in Worth Avenue. Plus, you know, all the luxury stores. Yeah, I mean, great quote. You know, I love that. You know, Steve Henry is man on the street talking about the yeah. the, the FBI right in the gallery gallery down the down the way. I'm sure, he was legit. Like, you know, he was like, "Oh my god, a lot of action." Because the thing about Palm Beach is like, you know, there are some whales there that might come in, but it's kind of sleepy. It's kind of slow. You know, if it's a Tuesday, you're sitting at the gallery. You might not get that many people coming in. It's so super probably, fucking boring. Palm Beach has always yeah, been boring. No matter yeah. how many galleries fucking migrate there, it'll still be boring. Uh-huh. I mean, like, but that's yeah, that's the point, right? It's supposed to be, like, where you just go and just chill the fuck out. Like, but, so this is a lot more, you know, excitement than, than anyone was used to. Um... Other kind of things bubbling up. There's been reports, I think, first reported in Bloomberg News that uh, Patrick Drahi, the 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 mm-hmm. owner of Sotheby's, for has it even been a year, year and a half, maybe, um, oh, on the yeah, heels on the heels years. of them announcing blockbuster numbers for the past uh, for the past year's auctions and private sales, etc., is contemplating taking the company private once again. I mean, excuse uh, me, taking, taking the public. taking the taking the public <laughs> yeah. once again uh, and listing it on one of the exchanges. You get any color yeah, on this? I mean, yeah, I, I think that there's, there was always speculation that this was going to be the plan. Like, that's kind of his reputation, right? He comes in, he buys, like, you know, at, like, you know, the, the, he buys a company that he thinks he can, you know, like, chop up and resell, right? 
And so, like, in two years, the market is as strong as it's ever been. He thinks that he can get a fuckload of money by offering this publicly. Yeah, you but know. it seems like, you know, he, in you know, it's not like he's pumped money into it to try and, you know, if anything, I hear that it's uh, uh, it's pretty lean and tight over mm-hmm. there. So the numbers look great. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. I, I, I might be a buyer of the stock. You know, uh, I've, I, I actually followed the aforementioned Dan Loeb into Sotheby's when he uh, when he's uh, bought up a bunch of stock and, and started pushing mm-hmm. in the way that he does as an activist investor. I followed him into that trade and I did quite well uh, uh, really? on the Sotheby's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing shot I, up over the couple of years that he was involved and that they made some changes at his urging. You know, I think that, 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 you know, it's, I think it's exciting. I think that, you know, Sotheby's has been really, really, you know, cooking with gas, like, like in the last year and a half during the pandemic. Um, and I think that's what he's doing. I mean, these guys are fucking muscly. Like they're not art people. They're fucking business people, you know? And they, they came in and just like kind of rejigger the entire like old school, like, way of selling art i mean kind of but not really they just happen to maybe float one of the greatest um uh you know kind of uh, the a couple of seasons of some of the best possible returns in a luxury goods market uh, yeah, more than I anything know. they did my question is you know <laughs> what's the poor son gonna do when daddy sells off the company because i'm not sure i'm not <laughs> sure if much of there's a real business rationale for him him running the asian asian uh quotient of it if it's a publicly held uh, company that reports to its shareholders right that's <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, you might be feeling the heat a little bit. I mean, I think he'll still be able to eat if he loses that gig, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it'll be exciting to have it back on if it is on the New York Stock Exchange where it, it was for decades. It'll be really exciting. You know that it's the, it was the oldest company uh, traded on the stock exchange. I didn't. You know, they had a great ticker ticker symbol BID for bid, which yeah. is uh, uh you know, I, I miss seeing that. Also, it was really one of the only publicly traded whereas we could look into. You know, because it was mm-hmm. a publicly traded company, we could look into the books and the files that they had to issue to their shareholders in the SEC every year. So it really gave an inside look at the at the high end art market in a way that no other. You know, since all the galleries and other auction houses are closely privately held companies, uh, didn't have to do as such. So that was always interesting. I thought. Yeah. Back when, like, I was like very, very vigorously on the market beat, I would have to listen into Tad Smith read those findings every quarter and report on them immediately. It was kind of—I mean, like, you know—it was great to get a look under the hood because, yeah, we don't get that anymore. Yeah, no, and it really was the only kind of check-in in a public market for an art, uh, an art-related thing. Um, in other news, uh, a picture of me and my family was uh, featured in the type of article yeah. that I often make fun of, <laughs> Artnet for publishing. Yeah, uh, I God was going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, Artnet, whose Twitter has been taken over by some—I don't know what the like fuck a, is going on there, man. It's a little—it's a little dark over there. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't look. I love my former employer very much. I just am very confused as to what's happening right now yeah no i know but, it's not a great look for you to for you to for you to shit on them so i will like it's like it's nft zone over there um i actually finally bit the bullet and uh and subscribed to pay money to read their um their behind the paywall stuff it hasn't mm-hmm. made me any smarter yet but i hope that it okay. will soon they also featured recently a quote-unquote collector uh, who comes from a big collecting family and um and is also an art advisor, uh, a show that they did in their home in a, uh, in a, in an Emirati city, I believe uh, a little, little background is that one of the paintings in the show is actually hung sideways. I hear. And when the artist saw this on Instagram and reached out, she was basically told to, to, to fuck off. Um, which yeah. I thought maybe should have been reported in this, this laudatory article, but 
you, you know. Wow. It wasn't a partnership thing, but it was basically a partnership thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyway, I love look- I love the photo of my family. I love my I, I love my Christmas our matching Christmas pajamas that we wear every year. If you're looking for your own, they're by Heart and Land. You can find them on the tot. <laughs> Sponcon. Um, well, what else is uh, what else is media out there? I mean, you know, that's that's basically it. I mean, I don't know. We're really winding down the season here. I think people are just hanging up their hats and getting ready for 2022. Um, I mean, I guess we'll see. Um, we'll see if anything <laughs> happens. I don't know. I think everything's about to shut down again, which is annoying. Mm-hmm. I think the the real what you really want to hang out for is I had a great long conversation, which you know, due to your inability to use the iCal feature on your phone, you had to miss oh. um, with Jonathan mm-hmm. Travis coming up, and I didn't oh, really wow, chat with him be before. Great. He just told us all about kind of his history, but also the history of the galleries kind of moving around. He's obviously one of the uh, the real estate art agent for the art world now here in new york yeah and how he placed a lot of major people in tribeca and kind of the movements there more than anyone he is responsible for the movement of galleries from lurie side and chelsea to tribeca uh and he's a really nice guy with a great collection and you know he just started a residency program up upstate yeah we didn't even get to the residency that was you know we we really were into the nuts and bolts of real estate stuff we'll have to have him on again but i urge Mm -hmm. everyone to hang in listen into that we uh, I think we're still going to do an episode next week as well. So yeah, uh, sure, totally. Yeah, it'll be remote. Stay we're tuned. we're all on the road. We're all moving around. We're all trying. We're on the road. We're well, fucking shucking and back. jiving and trying not to catch this damn Omnicon. I'm so glad I didn't go to the Deuce at all Omnicon. last week <laughs> or whenever that was Omnicon. Whatever the fuck it's called. It's not, it's close enough. Anyway, whatever, Nate. It was great to see you, Bobby. Happy Stay holidays for JT. Yeah, we'll be back uh, just after this message with Jonathan Travis. Cheers. Welcome back to Nota Bene. We are joined by Jonathan Travis, real estate agent to the Art Stars. He's a partner, I believe, at Redwood Property Group. Is that still the case? That is still the case. Phew. My 10 minutes of research are definitely paying off. We are not joined by Nate, who connected us, because uh, he doesn't know how to use the calendar app on his iPhone, evidently. <laughs> um, but, you know, we get to stay on his good side. You know, you, you never, you never want to get in a fight with someone that, that owns a printing press. It's true. Smart man. Um, so I wanted to connect with you, and I asked Nate to do as such because I've, I've, I've heard your voice a lot, and then I started reading your voice as someone that was kind of instrumental in helping a lot of the galleries that I do business with and care about kind of sort out where their spaces were. And we can get sure. into all that. But first, I just kind of want to, and I know you're also a collector of art and, uh, and have a really cool, uh, I noticed on the gram over the weekend, I think, a really cool-looking house somewhere up in Westchester County, I believe, <laughs> that looks like a sure. dope. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about your collecting. Um, but first, I kind of yeah. want to hear your story. How'd you get into real estate? Yeah. So um, real estate, you know, how, how I got into real estate originally or art real estate? No, so just real estate. Of- I want to hear, I want to hear okay. the story. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start from, let's start from scratch. Um, I graduated NYU in 2008 when the world went to shit and I was a quintessential underachiever. So I um, graduated thinking that everything was gonna be hunky-dory, couldn't get a job for a long time, ended up finding my only opportunity in a company that owned owned and operated radiation therapy centers, so cancer treatment centers. And I did business development for them. I studied economics and finance at NYU, um, but I was definitely not one of the better students uh, in my class. Um, So I was a business development analyst for a company, did not like what I did, did it for a few years. And then that company ended up hiring the first brokerage firm I worked for, Newmark Knight Frank, um, for this big real estate project they were embarking on. I ended up connecting with the senior broker on that real estate team that Newmark, that um, 21C hired. He liked, we, we had a nice little mutual connection. Um, he thought I'd be good at in the brokerage world, invited me to 
uh, interview for this, they called it a wheel program. It was uh, basically six people got hired to kind of bounce around Newmark's different divisions before becoming a broker. I interviewed for that, got got hired, um, realized I loved real estate and I, I'm kind of a, I grew up on Long Island, but I was kind of going into New York City until starting at 14 years old with a fake ID. So I knew the land, uh, like the lay of the land very well. And um, I've always loved New York and it's always been and my like, home. And like who in New York isn't obsessed with real estate, right? Exactly. It's it's like New York and real estate are like a you know a, a real love story, um, and they're very entangled. So um, so after uh, a little stint at Newmark, which was a corporate frat house, not my flavor. Um, I was never a frat guy. Turned down big big state schools in Michigan, Wisconsin to go to NYU because I always liked the city vibe and kind of was a did my own thing always. Um, and then uh, one of the things at Newmark that they taught you. Uh, was what they called how to canvas for business. And as a broker, as a young broker, there's kind of two ways to earn your keep uh, and you, you, and make a living. One is to mainly service senior brokers' accounts, you know, deal with space tours and um, kind of the, not quite administrative stuff, but some administrative stuff and, and not bringing in your own business. And then there was the other way, which was canvassing and bringing in your own business, which to me was a much, uh, much smarter route because it kind of made yourself invaluable. If you were the one bringing in the clients, they couldn't tell you to fuck off and and uh, and hire someone else. Which the, and the turnover rate in commercial real estate brokerage in New York City is dramatic. Like I think it's like one out of every ten commercial brokers that start end up in the business. You know, after a couple of years. So um, I got my training at Newmark, which was great. Uh, they you know they put you to the fire, worked twelve hour days, cold calling, cold emailing. Um, it was brutal, but it was it was a good learning experience. Realized I liked the business, but didn't like how they operated the environment. I was unhappy at work. Like it was just, it wasn't my flavor. So um, decided to take my experience and kind of just forge out on my own and see what happened. Um, ended up linking up with my partner at Redwood, who is an older brother of a, one of my dearest friends from high school, um, and just said, "Hey, you know, come park your real estate license here and see what happens if you give it a shot. It doesn't work out, no biggie." So I did that. Um, used my canvassing tools. Uh, that I learned with one of them, which was reading New York publications, uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine, you name it, uh, and just figure out what's happening in the city. And uh, I guess call it, you know, luck and hard work. And uh, in 2013, there was an article when West Chelsea had just started becoming this kind of hotbed for new development. You had the High Line coming in, you had Hudson Yards coming in, Whitney going down to Meatpack. So it was like this like last kind of the last frontier of of major development opportunities in Manhattan. And Casey Kaplan was quoted in the article being like, I don't like what's happening in this neighborhood. I'm paraphrasing. Um, when my lease expires next year, I plan to leave. And to me, that was like, that was a fucking golden nugget right there. Cause I was like, I got someone specifically saying that they plan on leaving their space, sent Casey a cold email, introduced myself. He was lovely enough to respond and invite me to his gallery to meet with him. We ended up having a nice rapport, found him his new uh, location on 27th street. Uh, he was the first kind of well-known contemporary dealer to leave the neighborhood. So the real deal, mm -hmm. which was the real estate publications ran a story about it. So I was like, holy shit, my first ever kind of significant deal on my own. I actually got press on. Um, so a couple of galleries read that article and said, Hey, we saw what you did with Casey. We're thinking about leaving also Casey introduced me to Anton Kern, whose space I found on 55th street. And I was like, Oh shit, this is like a cool little niche here. Um, and the rest is history, and I've been kind of focusing my efforts on the art world since then. And you had, but you had some interest in art, right? I think I read somewhere that you were kind of hustling, doing some minor and antique yeah, stealing, so, like in college on the side, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so my folks were lucky enough to pay for my education, but they were like, you know, with your spending money, you know, and party money, whatever you're yeah, on your own. I can only imagine in, at NYU, man. Right. 
Exactly, exactly. So um, I was always, I always had a knack for objects. Like when I was like 10, I, I set up a, a sports memorabilia store in like a walk-in closet in my, my, in my childhood house. And I would have friends come over and I'd walk them through and I'd sell them baseball cards and football cards and, and, and cases, all sorts of shit. Um, and I was kind of a weird dude. I played football. I was a, kind of a jock in one ways. And then I'd spend my weekend sometimes going to like antique fairs and things like that. So I was kind of had played both sides of the coin in that regard. And in college, instead of getting a normal job, I would buy and sell weird objects like antiques and watches and movie posters. And I was good at it. And so I started, um, I made a few bucks and I then started collecting street art because I didn't know anything about contemporary art. And I was completely overwhelmed by that world. Um, so I, I watched Exit to the Gift Shop and I was like, oh, these guys are fucking cool. And they're like out doing like public art and some of them are getting arrested. I'm like, this is cool. Uh, so I started buying street art and then transitioned into the contemporary art world for collecting. Once I started working with galleries, understanding how like the mechanics of the contemporary art world work, because it's pretty fucking complicated. And if you're not, if no one's like welcoming you in with open arms, which they tend not to do for, you know, 24 year olds with no money, uh, you kind of have to figure it out on your own, which I was able to do just by spending a lot of time with dealers, asking questions, seeing how that world works. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I mean, and, you know, and then, you know, and then they have a reason to want to sell you something too. In addition to you understanding a little bit better how the game works. Cause you're, cause you're sure. seeing it from the inside, like, Oh yeah, that guy hooked up, hooked us up with the space. Like we're going to give him access to, to, to buy a painting for sure. You know, exactly. It's, people like to sell to people they know. It just feels more comfortable. It's like a natural thing. I mean, that's why people hire. Definitely. You know, that's why someone like me, who's an art advisor, gets hired in a way. It's because all these people know who I am, so they, you know, it's it's an ease of an ease of use thing. Um, so your first deal was. It's interesting. Your first two deals, the first two deals you you, you talked about, real estate wise for galleries, were with really fairly established middle market dealers, um, uh, yep. Anton and Casey, and also putting them both in really neighborhoods that were at the time and kind of still are a little bit outside of where younger contemporary galleries would be. I mean, Casey's in a neighborhood that really you know is kind of on its own. He's able to really expand sure. there. And Anton, I guess he in in a way there was in, historically there was the Fifty Seventh Street corridor of kind of older right. older galleries, but for a gallery like him i mean that was a, a big move to what's basically it's not really a townhouse but a multi-level uh space like that uh, it, i mean it, you you would call it a townhouse yeah, it okay. is an old red brick building um you know based on the renovations you know someone will walk in and say oh it feels contemporary in here but you know with anton uh well, I, I, he's a lovely guy we have a lot of fun together when we were looking for space we, it, we spent a long time looking because you know when i first met him he brought me to his space and he had one of these classic old west chelsea buildings that was you know a five thousand square foot box with column you know no columns and skylights and and said, hey, find me this. And it kind of took a long time for him and others to realize that like that doesn't exist anymore. There was, was no the other Chelsea. I mean, the, the, right, pi the no pioneers of Chelsea, the Barbara Gladstones and the others that moved there in the 90s, I mean, that was the last, you know, kind of the last yeah, and industrial them, yeah. space. And uh, those, yeah. and the only people, if you didn't buy your building then really, with the raise of all the condos, there was no financially stable way to stay there. Exactly right. And that was what happened with Anton's building and was happening with all the other single story structures. Um, was that they were all going to get developed and um you know and sure enough it happens with his with, happened with his and you know it took a while to kind of say okay how can we re reconfigure this plan of we had five thousand square feet on one floor with a lot of flexibility what can we do within a similar budget um that allowed his program to still be able to function as he wanted it to but not 
being trying to find this thing that doesn't exist anymore in New York. And that took a while. And I, and I understand that it took a while, but uh, we ended up finding something super cool. And the building, you know, offered a lot of unique opportunities for him. Um, well, yeah. And Antoine, I, I love the man, but he's a particular guy. He has a very, you know, oh, that's what makes particular. him a great dealer, perhaps, is that yes. he has, you know, he has a real very particular sense of aesthetic vision. You know, and the guy yes, grew up in a castle, man. Like, you know, right. you know, he's exactly got, right. you know, his standards exactly are quite right. high, I would say. Um, yes, they are. In some cases, but then you, you know, so th- those are kind of one-offs and then you really i i know you you know i first heard your name i think from ellie ryan's is my mm-hmm. thought um sure. did you work with her or are you just friendly with her i'm not i'm not certain um i've i've i, I bought artwork from a program before i i didn't find her her space okay. uh, but we're she's she's one of my close friends in the art world okay sure. i mean did, did you begin um i know like tribeca is a big part of your story in terms of the galleries you've sure. worked with before that where who, did you do any of this stuff in chinatown or that kind of area two bridges i guess as it's called you know, I, I have to say, I guess I got lucky enough that when I kind of got lucky with Casey, the clientele that I was connected to uh, found me, I found them, et cetera. They were too big in terms of their, not in terms of their egos, but in terms of the space they needed for their program. Chinatown tends to offer very small storefronts, yeah. low ceilings, um, kind of tenement buildings. Um, they don't, you don't have the volume typically. In, in Chinatown as you do in other neighborhoods like Tribeca. So no, I, I have not, you know, I, I found Isaac um, uh, Lyles and King their space uh, in Chinatown, but mainly my work has been, people know me or, or familiar with me based on the work I've done in Tribeca okay. for the most part. And that's the strong bulk of what I've done. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense because I mean, if you think of the art world over the past 30 years, 40 years, I guess, in New York City. It goes from Soho, which was originally an industrial space. Uh, yeah. They build it up as uh, artists and galleries are almost always at the forefront of gentrification. Uh, they, they get priced out of there, and also no one wants to be in Soho, even if you can find a space, really, just because of you know pre-pandemic times. You know, It's just full of you know tourists clogging sure. the sidewalks, right? Uh, people move up to Chelsea a little bit. Um, and at the time that Anton's moving, uh, uh, moving fifty seven, you also have some younger galleries and, and mid range galleries going to the Upper East Side, um, where yeah. there is a strong presence of galleries. But then the sure. move which you spearhead Tribeca, which makes sense because again you have mostly column free, large, formerly industrial spaces, which have been gentrified for residential use, but really retail never had a strong, you know, ground level f- space. Uh, space never had a really strong, at least in my experience, um, a strong position. There, I mean, you basically had baby stores and a few restaurants, and that was it. Totally. So, so this part of Tribeca is even like kind of initially it was no man's land because when people hear Tribeca, they thought of Washington Street, Granite Street, cobblestone roads, um, a different feel and part of the neighborhood where this is like the most northeast part of Tribeca. Um, it's you know you are literally two blocks from Soho. So, uh, but because the way Soho worked, the foot traffic stopped, you know, basically on Grand Street, more or less. So all these stores, these beautiful storefronts, these beautiful cast iron buildings on Walker and White and Lisbonard and Franklin, um, they were kind of dead zones. They, they were a lot of the ground floor spaces were actually not even used as retail spaces because there was no foot traffic there. For galleries, it made a lot of sense because, um, you know, they had the bones like you talked about that that were attractive skylights, high ceilings, beautiful buildings, etc. And the rents were super modest. And then one of like the biggest like kind of like differentiators that became super attractive to a lot of these galleries was that you're after Sandy, a lot of the lower levels in West Chelsea became obsolete. No insurance company was going to store, was going to pay, you know, was going to insure art down there. So they all started looking, in, many of them started looking in 
Northeast Tribeca, you're far enough east where you're basically centrally located in the city. You have no flood zone concerns. And a lot of these spaces have these amazing lower levels with 10, 11 foot ceilings, they have windows, and you basically get them for free. So you're, you're let's say, like for instance, James Cohan had about 4,000 square feet in West Chelsea and paid X number of dollars in rent. Now they can they went to Tribeca paid about the same rent, but then doubled their footprint because they had a full basement below their ground floor. So now the, a lot of the logistics of the gallery, packing, shipping, all that stuff went went just right underneath your space. Yeah, they have full departments down there. I've been to down down to them. You know, they have like all the all the back of house stuff and sometimes like a little viewing room or something carved yeah, out down there. Library. I mean, you know, a lot of these spaces are, are they're, they're nice down there. They have, you know, the ceiling height's good. The natural light is often there. Um, so these so all of a sudden they're like, oh, shit, we can get essentially 8,000 square feet for the same price as 4,000 square feet uh, in West Chelsea. And that just became a huge value add. I mean, I think the, the, the wheels were in motion, but that's that, James was James. One of the first galleries you moved into Tribeca or who, who was they the were first? On the early side? Yeah. I, they weren't like one of the, the first, but they were definitely on the earlier side of the, um, of the transformation for sure. Who did you do first? Do you remember? The first one was, was, um, Alexander and Bonin. Oh yeah. Beautiful space too. Yeah. Um, they're actually relocating. Um, dude, I just sent out an email recently. I think that they're looking for something a little more modest now. Um, but uh, yeah, beautiful space. Um, actually, technically, the first gallery I put in the neighborhood was Patrick Parrish on Lisbonard Street. People know him more as a design gallery. Mm-hmm. So he's often not in the same conversation, which is understandable. He's not a contemporary art gallery. He's a design gallery, but he's got a really cool program and he's a good friend. So he was technically the first um, the, the, the first gallery. Funny enough, Casey actually looked at the space that Alexander and Bonin took on Walker Street. And it was basically between that space and 27th Street. And my gut said that, and I you know, remember telling him this, but he had his own priorities and agenda, which is, of course, you know, everyone's got their own flavor and, and way to do things. I said, I felt like this felt like the next, which made a lot of sense for other galleries to move down here. The buildings make a lot more sense. Flower District's a little tougher, but he said, hey, I want the most space for my, for, for my budget, which he was able to get, you know, 30% more space for the same rent on 27th Street. So it made sense for him. And you're you both kind of right, because, you know, yeah. Tribeca did become the nexus for galleries. Yes, absolutely. And Casey got a larger space and almost over 10,000 square feet, which he would have gotten more like 7,000 square feet on Walker Street. So he was able to get what he wanted for the same rent numbers and um, Walker Street and Tribeca ended up turning into, you know, what I thought it might be. And I presume for landlords, gallery is a pretty great uh, uh, tenant in that they're, you know, they're not a restaurant. They're, you know, they're they're not even, they're retail, but not quite, um, you know, pretty steady. Um, Were landlords really amenable to the notion of galleries or did it take some convincing because the numbers can be so feast or famine? Yeah, I I think that for the most part, uh, landlords are pretty thrilled to have galleries in there. Um, You know, this, of course, goes to the every time when a lease gets signed. And it's always funny when you work with someone for the first time and they don't, you know, maybe haven't done the process in a while or they're not from New York or whatever. And, you know, galleries or landlords will, you know, request financials before any lease gets signed, security deposits are finalized. So for the most part, I've been lucky enough to work with very established dealers, like you mentioned, you know, the mid cap dealers that have been around for 10, 20 plus years. So they're showing, you know, you know, pretty sizable revenue numbers and, and very stable. Um, So for those tenants, yeah, absolutely. Galleries are great. And also one thing that galleries do that not a lot of other tenants can do, except for maybe like, you know, a very fancy retail store, kind of a dry goods retail store, is they create beautiful open space. So when, 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 when if a gallery built, spends, you know, half a million dollars building out some beautiful Tribeca space, and let's say they sign a 10-year lease and in five years they close or something changes, 
a landlord's left with a beautiful open space. If it's a restaurant, it's a doggy daycare center, it's a medical use, then all of a sudden they have that to deal with. And then they have to deal with demolishing, rebuilding. So it shows, residual, it shows really nicely for the next trade. Shows nicely, there's a lot of residual value in the, um, in the improvements that, that galleries make. In is there a gallery, whether you placed it or not, that you think of that really kind of um, it sort of like the tide sort of turned and, and, and or, or a series of galleries that opened all at once. So you felt like, oh, it really has arrived. Like my my theory, oh, yeah, my yeah, theories yeah. my theory is being proven out. Yeah, well, that was that was definitely I think it was like Labor Day a couple of years ago when like six of the galleries opened their space on the same night. And it was like a fuck block party i don't know if you were around but like it, it was yeah, cool yeah. i was like bouncing in like, the streets where like people were like drinking smoking weed on the street it, it was like this is fucking this is, like, it was like the old chelsea the chelsea i kind of grew up in it wasn't pretentious people were just hanging out shooting the shit everyone was happy the streets were mobbed and i was like oh like there's something happening here and then jerry salt did that article in vulture about like what's happening in tribeca and and at that point i think you know that really kind of got like you know the flagpole got got planted but i saw you know i've been working on you know tribeca for seven years now so so for you know the the first two or three of those years i kind of knew that it was happening but real estate deals take a long time you know but by the time usually between the time i start literally walking out the door showing a gallery space to the time they open is you know anywhere between six and twelve months so it's like you know it, it, it's not like it's rare for these things to happen so consecutively where like people can take notice and say oh shit five people just opened the same time like what's happening here it's usually pretty staggered so you know to, to, that was that night where it was like oh wow five six galleries just opened their doors the streets are, are are mobbed people are happy it's cool it's not pretentious like something 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 changed here yeah I mean it's kind of like the story of New York you don't know that notice that neighborhoods are changing or things are happening and then all of a sudden you look up and like and there it's it so is. robust you know it's like it's such a there's so much happening in the city that like you need to either be intimately aware of like the industry that we're referring to which is currently the art world or work in real estate or something where you're constantly on the same blocks in the same neighborhoods and you're like seeing like one by one the dominoes go down i mean it's kind of a great vibe i mean i'm spending more time in tribeca than i ever have before i mean i always had some friends that live there like well-off friends you can go there for like a dinner party or something and then you'd walk out into the kind of empty street at night and it was beautiful like very kind of uh uh, in that way, but now like really feel something happened there. I mean, I feel like the Odeon should probably cut you a small little check every month, considering the amount of business that the art world is bringing. And, and Oshaval, yeah. actually, here's a here's a funny story, um, a little a little anecdote. So I had a lease out for a gallerist for which I'll leave unnamed because it's not my favorite person in the world. Um, for uh, a, a space, uh, the, the space that Oshaval took, and basically we were negotiating, and there was some stalling and some challenging negotiations. And the landlord came to me and said, listen, I got an offer from a restaurant group out of Chicago. It's a better rent number, but we're so close with your gallery. Like if we can finish this deal in a few days and we were close, like we'll sign and get it done. And this was like a $70,000 fee for me. So it was a this major commission. Um, and I cared about placing galleries and I was like, you know, anxious about it. And I went to the, t went to my client and I just said, Hey, you know, like, this is what the story is. We need to get this done. And he basically said, you know, I'm not going to be bullied by anyone. They're probably bluffing, blah, blah. Sure enough, Oshaval is now the tenant of the space. And I told them when I, when the first time I went there, I I, like, I had like a nice rapport with the, with the server. And I like jokingly said, I was like, you know, I actually like, I, I, I lost this, like a pretty substantial fee uh, because you guys came in and offered the landlord. I was like, how about a drink? And they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny. The way you said, tell that story, I man, it's a lot of like, 
what I do in a, in a, a broker in the same way, but for art, just that, sure. you know, trying to pull two sides together and, you know, in the this middle and, you know, you. I've definitely had people be like, you don't know, I feel like I'm being bullied. I'm just going to walk like, fuck that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, what, one of the most important, you know, people always say that bullshit about, you know, always be closing in, bro- in real, in brokerage or sales, whatever. I have, I have two models, which is always be available because people, when, when they are nervous about something, especially as significant as a real estate transaction where it's a 10 year lease and it's a major commitment, if they feel uncomfortable, or something or unsure and you go MIA for a day or, or even sometimes like eight hours, they get frantic. So like, you know, always being available to, to, to communicate with people is very important. Um, and the second is managing expectations because that I'm sure you could also you know, relate to as well. Is this, It's the same thing. It's like saying, hey, you know, I don't think this guy's bluffing. This hasn't come up once during the process. We've been dragging our feet, you know, this seems real to me. And I tried to manage expectations. It didn't work most of the time. I, I, you know, I seem to be pretty decent at it, but that time it didn't work out. And of course the deal went sideways. Um, did you see any, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm presuming as such, but did just before COVID as Tribeca was kind of becoming a nexus were, were landlords taking notice and was that, was that where the ask per square feet going up or was yeah, it pretty modestly, stable? You know, honestly? It, it was, it was for sure. Um, but, but modestly it, there was never this, like astronomical jump, which sometimes you've gotten over the course of the last decade in areas like Upper Madison, Prime Soho, Times Square, even people don't realize Times Square is some of the highest ground floor rent because just because of foot traffic. Um, so there was never that like astronomical rise. It was slow and steady for sure, because there was so much available space. Then all of a sudden people are like, oh shit, that got leased, that got leased, that got leased. And then landlords started realizing, oh, like there's something happening here. So they became a little, a little higher with their expectations in rent, but it never and it still hasn't gotten to the point where it's dramatically higher than it was. I mean, it's higher, but but not unaffordably so. And we had kind of a firewall or a fire gap with COVID, I would think, where since nothing, you know, no one was feeling comfortable to sign anything for a little bit that, you know, kind of put a... Yeah. Like, I mean, there were the exceptions, you know, like Grimm that signed a lease in you know, July of 2020, who got one of the best deals in the history of Tribeca because they ran towards when everyone ran away. Well, I mean, that, that was true in the large art market. The people that were down to spend money in March of 2020 got 30% yeah. off anything they wanted. Um, but you had to have the cojones to, 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 exactly to make that right. play, right? Totally. Um, so moving, and and I, I will ask before I want to move into kind of your collecting activities, but real yeah. quick, and uh, and this is certainly highly confidential information, so you might not want to answer. Outside of Tribeca, any 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 feelings, any tremors in the world of like other spaces that might be might be cool for a gallery uh, to look at, either a, a young gallery or a mid sized gallery, neighborhood wise. Yeah, you know, I think so. There aren't that many neighborhoods because galleries tend to like to be in a critical mass, right? Like they like to be around their peers. They like to have someone be able to come and see five shows in, in a little bit. Um, in a short period of time. So, you know, it, it does kind of like, there's nothing that could happen materialize overnight. Um, I will say there's some interest poking around in South Soho, like South of Grand Street. So like when like the, the retail shopping tends to end at Grand, which only gives you like a block or two between Canal. But aesthetically, you know, those are really nice blocks too. Beautiful buildings, same bones as Tribeca, same architecture. Um, so that's definitely, people are poking around there a little more frequently now because there's a lot of absorption in Tribeca and there's like a lot of, you know, there's not many great spaces currently available that will always change and things roll over. Um, but the, the, the amount of, you know, being over 40 galleries now in the neighborhood, um, you know, spaces get gobbled up pretty quickly. Um, you know, the, the, the problem with the Lower East Side in Chinatown is what we talked about earlier is that the volume of the spaces and the, the, the tenement style buildings don't offer the same type of bones that, that a lot of the mid cap galleries look for. And the Upper East Side has a great critical mass of galleries, but it's expensive. It's still the most expensive neighborhood for, for gallery space, for sure. Like for what you get in a single floor in a nice townhouse, 
on, you know, on off Madison or upper Madison is the same as what you get for, you know, the 2,500 square feet on the ground floor plus a full basement in Tribeca. And so the, you're, the scale of the spaces and what you can show is totally different. You know, you have to be showing smaller, oh, basically paintings, smaller paintings, and they have to be priced in the six figures, I would think, to make it work. Very hard to get a 12-foot painting stretched in an upper floor of a townhouse building. You know, like it, it, it's it's... Logistics of getting objects in and out of those floors have been the killers for many deals that I've been working on or galleries have considered because you just can't get huge things in and out. Um, so let's, uh, uh, I mean, I love the business side of things, but I also just because I noticed over Instagram the weekend that you seem to have a pretty impressive collection of mostly figurative painting that are, that, that yeah. are up in a, uh, up in the up in the burbs in Westchester. Um, so you started collecting, obviously, you know, you had interest as we spoke about, and then you start meeting these people and it makes it easier to understand why. So kind of when did you really seriously start engaging in, in buying work for yourself? Yeah, um, I would say... You know, in terms of contemporary, like, you know, outside of the street art world, which was my first foray into into kind of collecting art, um, was when I first started working with galleries. Like when I first started working with Casey. I remember what I would do is, because um, this is like when I had no confidence in, in the, the art world and no experience. So before I sent, because I sent tens, like maybe not 10, at least 10,000 cold emails in my life to Dealers. I also I've done some work with lighting companies, furniture. So like, I say like I, I specialize in art and design. It's mainly art, but it's the creative side of commercial real estate. I'm not interested in working with accounting firms and law firms. There's the big for like the new marks to deal with that. I like the, I like the funky people, the creatives. Um, so when I first started working with, or when I first started kind of like canvassing, cold emailing galleries, um, I would go through their rosters. And I would always pick my favorite artists and I would just say, hey, you know, I, I learned about the gallery recently. I really dig so-and-so's work. And it was true. And those were all honest emails that I'd find my favorite one. It was Anton was Nicole Eisenman. I was lucky enough to get a Nicole Eisenman piece off Paddle 8 when they still existed for a fraction of what it would cost in a gallery before her new museum show. And and uh, before she kind of you know took off, my timing was, pre was pretty good on that one. But that was my favorite artist. And I told Anton, oh, I love Nicole's work. And he told me price points. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, you know. It's the same for me now, but I, but I got lucky and scored one because I, I was diligent. When I become interested in things, like I, my, my family and my friends, like I become obsessive. I like, I have a very, I have like a, a, an ongoing mind that like, I'm always thinking about the things that I'm, that I'm interested in. So um, that was how I start, first started. Nicole, uh, I have a beautiful like 14 inch painting on paper, which I still love. Um, that was one of my first, my first pieces. And then as I started kind of getting comfortable, it's like, okay, you have a, I have been good eye and, and an interest in that. Okay. Like mostly figurative. Yes. But there, I have some non-figurative stuff too. Like a narrative painting, like abstract painting doesn't tend to just get me excited in the same way. Um, I have bought a couple of abstract paintings. Every once in a while, I see one that I get excited about and I'll, and I'll buy it. But it's, um, it's good that you have a point of view that you have a focus as opposed to just, sure. you know, you know, grabbing this and that grab bags. Absolutely. It's, it, it's what genuinely speaks to me. It's, it's what I connect to. I like, I always love like trying to understand like the human psychology about, you know, why someone made something and why they rendered someone the way they, they did. And, you know, the colors chosen and then the moods that get felt because of that. So that was always what spoke to me naturally. Um, and then as I started using Instagram as a tool to like discover artists, what, what, what I would do is I would, I started following museums and galleries and curators and I would just scroll. And then at the minute I found something interesting, I would take a screenshot. And then at the end of each night or whatever, or every couple of days, I would go through all my screenshots and I'd Google and, and like one of my first um, kind of aha collecting moments was an artist named Ark Minoro Niles, who now shows with Layman Maupin. This is actually his painting right there. Yep, yep. Um, 
And so I, I saw his work on Instagram and I was like, God damn, this is really cool. Funky and weird. And I tend to, I tend to like weird, weird paintings. Um, and so I, I said, Oh, his studio. I just, I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And I, and I, uh, went to a studio or I, I found that that a studio, I sent him an email. He's like, Oh yeah, my studio is in Brooklyn. Um, come by. And that was like my first kind of like real studio visit. And I, I, he had this tiny space and I walked into the studio and he had just had a show in Harlem and none of, I, I don't even think maybe one, I don't even think one of the paintings had sold in the show. And I walked in and I saw these paintings and I was like, holy shit, these are fucking amazing. I was just, and I talked to him, everything felt authentic, like why he painted, what he painted, he was just the, his character. And I was like, man, these are really good. So I ended up buying a painting out of the studio for a very modest sum. And then I lived with it for a while and I bought a second painting and we kind of developed a friendship at that point. And like, you know, we get, we would hang out every once in a while. We lived pretty close to each other. And afterwards, after we kind of developed a nice comfort level with each other, he was like, Hey, do you know any dealers that might you know be interested in coming to do a studio visit? Like the, the, the thing in Harlem didn't go as well as I was hoping. And I'm you know, kind of figuring out what's next. Um, ended up linking him up to Rachel Uffner, um, just cause she was a, I had bought a couple of things from her. Um, and she went to a studio visit and thought the work was insanely good, brought a painting down to Nada in Miami. I think this was 2018 or 2017. Um, the response was in incredible. He, she gave him a solo show with like all the older works that no one had really seen. He got like five reviews from that show, including the New York times. Um, and, uh, and since then, his career has, you know, he's now shown. Look, at, look at you being part of the community. I love it. Bringing, bringing artists and galleries together, not just finding them space. Um, oh, no, I've, I've, you know, thank you. I've, I've actually done that like five to eight times, I'd say. I've found artists very early on um, and linked them to dealers and dealers have given them their first show and they've become very successful, thankfully for them. And um, it's worked it's worked out really well. And, and, you know, I always tell people when they ask me about collecting, like I always will buy like a seminal work by a super young artist um, over something mid-tier, blue chip, work on paper. I just, that's not, that's not what interests me. What interests me is the excitement of like learning about someone's like what makes their practice tick and being, being able to, you know, collect a, a piece of that. And, 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 to and me that, artists of your generation that are, you know, that exactly. are going through the same things, you know, same point in their career, maybe, uh, so to speak. Um, exactly. Awesome. All right. Well, this was even better than I could have hoped. It's really nice oh, to meet you in this way. It's always fun to do a, to do one of these with someone you haven't hung out with because it's all fresh. Likewise, and it's every, everything's new. So that was cool. Yeah. I'm sure I will see you out on the beat soon. Uh, if this Omnicon doesn't uh, doesn't keep us all in our houses for the rest of the winter. Although uh, I'm down for that. So thank you so much, Jonathan Travis. It was great to meet That's you. Fine, That's it Thanks for us, man. Too, man. No to Take care. Out. See ya.